contact, making, contact. Making, making, making contact. I'm Salima Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact, we hear from Yari Marbonia and Marisol Lebron about their collection, Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm. They talk about the fact that it wasn't just Hurricane Maria itself that led to such death and catastrophe, but also centuries of colonial neglect. It's not just about the wind and the rain of the storm, but about you know all the fragility that already existed before then, but also all the government abandonment that happened afterwards. They also talk about the incredible mutual aid efforts they've witnessed since Hurricane Maria and what it means for the future of the island. I'm Jerry Marbonilla. I'm one of the editors of Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm. I'm in the town of Guanica, on the southern coast of Puerto Rico, where just two years after Hurricane Maria, a series of earthquakes have brought homes, businesses, and the local school behind me to the ground. When we first wrote Aftershocks of Disaster, we had no way of knowing that the title would become such an apt metaphor for thinking about the current challenges on the island. The book is a collection of essays by journalists, scholars, artists, and activists, reflecting on both the consequences of Hurricane Maria, as well as what set the stage for it to become such a humanitarian crisis. We argue that a disaster is never a singular event, but always an unfolding process. In this sense, all disasters carry aftershocks, the repetitive jolts that are felt when state agencies fail, when disaster capitalism rolls in, when individuals are displaced and trauma is compounded. For our first conversation, we traveled to San Isidoro in the town of Canovanas to visit the community of Vallejil, a neighborhood created through land reclamations, which has historically been abandoned by state agencies and is now home to a large immigrant community. During our visit, we talked to Patricia Noboa, a psychology professor at the University of Puerto Rico, who established a legal and psychological clinic here after visiting the community with a medical brigade in the wake of Maria. Here, there were people with chronic conditions, such as diabetes, hypertension, that got worse. There were people with many skin problems, such as skin ulcers. This was especially true when I arrived in October, which was the worst month in Puerto Rico, because we had 15 feet of water and the septic tanks overflowed. So those who were here swam in feces. Then if they had any open wounds, those would get infected. Here some people died of leptospirosis. Some people died because they decided they couldn't go on and took their own lives. Specifically, they hung themselves. And I felt what I heard from them was too much. My role in the health brigades was to listen and hold space for what they were living, without diagnosing, but rather really listening to their suffering. For me, it was very important to sit in a listening space. When I say listening space, I mean literally open a space for people 
to tell their stories. You were just listening to a clip from the documentary Aftershocks of Disaster, which was itself based on a collection of essays by activists all over Puerto Rico recounting their experiences of Hurricane Maria and its aftermath. The collection was edited by Yarimar Bonilla and Marisol Lebron, who spoke online for a Haymarket Books Talk in August. The panel was moderated by Molly Crabapple, who starts the conversation by looking at perceptions of the Caribbean and its vulnerability to disaster. So I wanted to ask you a few questions that this film and this book brought up for me. And the first one is that there is this popular perception that the problems in Puerto Rico started with Maria. The truth is that, that this is a lie, right? Both what happened in Maria, but also the horrific response afterwards come from austerity and colonialism. And I would love for you to talk about the ways in which what happened during and after Maria are actually aftershocks of far greater issues. Yeah, I think for us, that's been something that has been at the center of how we've been thinking about post-disaster Puerto Rico and even the concept of aftershock. What is the main shock and what is the aftershock? Is Maria the main shock? Is it an aftershock of colonialism? It's not just about the wind and the rain of the storm, but about you know all the fragility that already existed before then, but also all the government abandonment that happened afterwards. And in doing presentations about the book in Puerto Rico, a lot of people in the Q&A, in the discussion, it would almost turn into group therapy where people would talk about also their own individual aftershocks, you know, how things rippled through for them. You know, this feeling of repetitive cycles, of unending disasters, of events that keep punctuating and keep redefining what the post-disaster landscape is. We borrowed this language of earthquakes and then Puerto Rico faced this earthquake swarm. And I think that's how the disaster feels in Puerto Rico. And at any point you could have another big one. The big thing that we tried to emphasize a lot in the volume, and I think it comes through in, in the film as well, is really the ways in which this is an engineered disaster. There's no way to talk about this as a natural disaster. And even man-made disaster doesn't even capture, I think, the deliberate forms of abandonment and exploitation and dispossession. For us, one of the things that we tried to really emphasize were the questions of what exactly were the conditions and the structures that created that engineered disaster. And for us, colonialism was huge. And I think that question of what's the initial shock for a lot of the contributors 1898, or if not sooner, becomes that moment, at least in talking about American imperialism and colonialism, of identifying a kind of initial shock. And then if we're thinking about the effects of this long, slow, painful economic crisis, the so-called debt crisis that Puerto Rico is in, that is key to understanding what occurred. And I think for a lot of people, it's very clear the ways in which austerity kills. If I can just add something, you know, I often hear people say, oh, Puerto Ricans can't catch a break, as if it was this bad luck, this draw of the card, as if it wasn't a systemically produced vulnerability and, and risk. Yeah, and Hilda Jorens' piece in the collection also deals with this, right? So it's like trope of Puerto Rican as part of the disastrous tropics. 
the tropics are somehow this exceptional space where these horrible disasters happen. It's these stricken people in these stricken islands. And it completely ignores colonial capitalism, entrenched racism. Hurricane Maria was this event that hit Puerto Rico, but it did not hit all Puerto Ricans in the same way and with the same intensity. So we saw all of the inequalities that already were at work in Puerto Rico intensify to the nth degree through this event. I want to talk about mutual aid in Puerto Rico, and especially I want to talk about how the mutual aid movements that were founded long ago, you know, during like the student strikes, first helped feed people after the hurricane and then helped create the groundwork for getting the corrupt Ricky Rosayo to finally leave. <laughs> yeah, I think this question of mutual aid and re- resilience that emerges is a really important one because on the one hand, it was incredibly powerful to see the ways in which communities were organizing themselves. But on the other hand, it's really troublesome because I think it shows the degree to which Puerto Ricans have come to understand themselves as people who cannot depend on their government, either the local or the colonial government, to provide any kind of assistance. So I think one of the questions for us is, how do we acknowledge the incredible work that activists did on the ground and the fact that it was activists and not the government that saved lives? without necessarily romanticizing the abandonment that made that necessary or the demands for this population that is undergoing tremendous trauma to have to immediately go into triage, recovery, and assistance mode, that there's no time to process because you instantly have to be engaging in the survival work. And I think that's what we're seeing with COVID. That's what we're seeing with the incredible feminist organizing against misogynist violence and against domestic violence because the state is not responsive. And I think it's something that we're not just seeing in Puerto Rico. I stayed in New York, you know, throughout all of the uh, worst of the COVID. And despite Cuomo getting on TV and giving PowerPoints and you speaking in his soothing daddy voice, the government, they abandoned New Yorkers, especially poor New Yorkers. And one of the reasons that people survived in this city was because a lot of people Mm -hmm. made mutual aid projects and they fed each other. And And on one hand, like my deepest respect, you know, for those mostly women who did that. But on the other hand, what a disgusting thing that the government of one of the richest cities in the world could not support its own people. And the way that our elders were fed was because unpaid New Yorkers worked for free to go up and down the stairs and housing projects and drop off food for them. Yeah, I think you make such a good point, Molly. I mean, there's so many lessons from Maria that we see now in the U.S. with the pandemic. And a lot of people in Puerto Rico, we've been saying, oh, this is the U.S.'s Hurricane Maria moment. It's moment of realizing that its government will fail them, will abandon them, will literally leave them to starve and fend for themselves. In the film, Giovanni, who has been such an important figure in the movement to have these community kitchens and to do all this autogestion, autonomous community organizing, he makes really important points about how we can't let the state off the hook and how the state in many ways is depending on us to fill in those gaps. And what do those of you who work in the soup kitchens think of the response to the earthquakes and the ways people have tried to help those most affected? It's positive in that there is a need. 
we respond, we are saved. Okay, but right now, the earthquakes are even more complicated than the hurricane for various reasons, but you can't solve that by only feeding people. This country has a structural problem that starts with the public buildings the state is responsible for, but continuing with entire communities that didn't follow the necessary construction regulations because they didn't have enough money, because the state let them build in order to avoid taking responsibility. Celebrar la, la capacidad de movilización, pero tampoco este, celebrarlo como si fuese autogestión. Yo he tratado de distinguir. So the state has a responsibility we have to point out over and over. This is why we should celebrate our ability to mobilize, but not celebrate as if it were autonomous organizing. I've previously tried to make that distinction. Autonomous organizing is an intentional process. We started CAM on September 28th, and we had chosen the name a week before. We didn't set up a food tent after the hurricane, start cooking, and then say, we are here creating. We knew we were creating an institution that would last. What happened after the earthquakes was not autonomous organizing and has little to do with it as a political principle. That was called solidarity and survival. This distinction is important because we can't always build a fantasy around the idea that, oh, this is great and we don't need a government. We need one. Maybe not this government for obvious reasons, but we need a government that responds to people's needs. Because if not, buildings will collapse on our children. The only thing I've kept repeating since this started is, these people are going to kill us. This is kind of foundational to the nation and to the working of capital, you know, that there's going to be the state irresponsibility, organized irresponsibility that is going to then lean on citizen initiatives. And so I think that is a big question that folks in Puerto Rico have been asking themselves. And I think folks in the U.S. now are asking themselves, Okay, we fill in all these gaps, but then the state continues to operate as is. So how can we take care of ourselves in ways that don't actually help the state reproduce its own power as a genocidal state? You know, the graffiti that you saw in the buildings here in San Juan, like Giovanni says in the film, the government wants to kill us through its irresponsibility. And so how do you combat that politics of death? this kind of neoliberal ideology of individuals having to care for themselves and there being no state role. You were just listening to Yari Marbonia and Marisol Lebron, editors of a collection of essays which was turned into a documentary called Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm. And you're listening to Making Contact. To keep up to date on our shows and get behind the scenes information, visit www.radioproject.org. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And now, back to the show. Yadi, we have some questions here. One of the folks who's with us was asking, when does systemic neglect become, well, genocide? Yeah, I think it's something that is important to think about in relationship to Puerto Rico, but also in relationship to the 50 states and the communities that are in deep neglect. I mean, Flint still doesn't have clean water, right? And so there's the spectacular violence 
that we've, you know, we're protesting so much these days about police blatantly shooting down and not just police, also armed citizens, even armed minors taking the lives of folks in the streets in ways that are deeply state sanctioned, that is clearly genocidal. But you also have this slow violence through environmental issues, through toxicity, through abandonment. That kind of slow accrual of violence and neglect is sometimes harder to really get our our head around because in some ways we even become numb to it. In Puerto Rico, so many people arrive now and look around and they're like, wow, Maria really damaged this place. And then it's hard to say, well, what of these potholes, boarded up buildings, um, crumbled ruins? A lot of that was not Maria. This like slow erosion of infrastructure and also, sadly, an erosion of expectation that then you, you stop protesting. And I think that's a real danger. Yeah, I think that that question of how do we reckon with the slow violence or this slow erosion of everyday livability is a really crucial one. Even things like Act 2022, people call it the population swap, about bringing rich, mostly Americans to Puerto Rico, where they're in their own kind of bubbles with butlers and high-speed internet and golf carts. So all of these breaks being given to people from the outside when, especially in the post-recovery moment, Puerto Ricans don't have access to any of those resources that would enable them to stay. And so I think especially for young folks, and this is something I've encountered in my own family who are young folks in Puerto Rico, is this feeling that there is an active effort by the government to push you out or a vision of Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans. And that, I think, emerged in the context of the Ricky Renuncia chats and Telegram where they were joking. Oh, I saw the Puerto Rican future and it was beautiful because there was no Puerto Ricans there. So I think that there is this feeling among the population where there is this effort to really destroy any ties and claims to place. Note for a friend who wants to commit suicide after the hurricane. No one teaches us to accept death because death that can death stays empty inside. The great hole of it that wants to devour us. No one explains how we can become part of the impossible new world that is tomorrow, or how we are supposed to avoid falling into the perfect and permanent under-eye circle we call facing the day. Mana, how not to understand. That is the question I avoid with the organizational fervor of a rescue team that never arrives. But I'll tell you this, desire isn't always followed by death. Raquel Salas Rivera is an acclaimed poet who served as the Poet Laureate of Philadelphia from 2018 to 2019. I sat down with him in Old San Juan to talk about the experience of being named Poet Laureate in the midst of the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. The poem that appears in Aftershocks for a friend who is contemplating suicide. Tell me about this poem. What motivated you to write it? Well, this is something that I think you've mentioned before, and, and several people have mentioned that. In the diaspora, there was a lot of information arriving about things happening there. And one of the things that struck me the most was how Facebook became a sort of live journal, like a notebook of people's experiences with people writing 
I've been here for six hours waiting in this line for gasoline and I'm going to have to sleep in my car tonight. Things like that. Now, in this case, I had a friend who kept talking about wanting to kill herself. And I didn't know how to respond because in reality, I'm not always the best at comforting people, especially from afar. I also didn't know what kind of consolation I could give someone. Everything felt empty. What, what could I possibly say to someone facing this? It's honestly just horrible. I understand. I understand. I mean, I feel like I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to say in the face of that. But I did want to say something like, I see you and that's messed up. And do you know if the friend has read the poem? Yeah, I, I read it to her in private. She knows. She thanked me. We sat on a ladder and I read it to her. I have so many poems that are depressing, so tropidarks, that I set myself the task of writing about the future. And what I discovered in that process was that we are constantly creating a future in Puerto Rico. But they don't teach us that, right? What colonialism does is reinforce moments of competition and lack of solidarity. And it rarely reinforces the times when we do amazing things. I, I think of it as similar to being queer. For queer people, there's no guide on how to form families or how to have relationships. One of the first things I learned when I started dating women, and I'm not a woman, but at the time I identified as a woman and a lesbian. And back then I realized that I had to invent a way to approach another woman because that didn't exist in my vocabulary. That did not exist in my emotional or social vocabulary. Queer folks are constantly inventing things. We invent gender. We have to invent a whole world. And within that, we screw up over and over and over, right? I think this is similar to how Puerto Ricans have been creating solidarity in spite of imperialism, colonialism, and everything. Nobody taught us to come together. And sometimes we do it wrong. And other times we do it amazingly. But we always do it ourselves. So I have another question, which is, what does survivance look like in Puerto Rico in addition to mutual aid? So how can we think about kind of everyday strategies of survival besides mutual aid? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a an important time to think about that. There's so many people in Puerto Rico who lost their jobs and have not received any government assistance here. And they have no real income, you know? And so I think in Puerto Rico, people have relied on certain strategies, a lot of family assistance. Also, in terms of food, you know, a lot of people are growing a lot of stuff as best they can. There's also a lot of bartering that goes on in Puerto Rico, a lot of trading of food and clothes and different items. Something that I think the pandemic will do for all of us is to kind of rethink what it is we need in our lives. I saw a post of someone talking about, oh, you know, like making home-cooked meals and doing all these kind of arts and crafts things. I mean, this is 
the way we should be living. We should be taking care of ourselves and nurturing ourselves and feeding ourselves. While at the same time, it's still really important to hold the state accountable, especially in Puerto Rico, where you have the highest sales tax of any U.S. state or territory. And that money is going to service a debt. How can we be expected to pay that debt and sustain ourselves and be our own emergency agency? And I interviewed this mayor in the southern coast of Puerto Rico, and he was telling me about how he has to be the secretary of ed because he has to figure out post-earthquake where to put up tents for schools, how to distribute food. All these government tasks have to be dealt with locally. And I think similarly now, individuals, like we've all had to become epidemiologists and contact tracers and, you know, like figure out how to navigate this landscape with such little assistance and guidance. You know, one thing that constantly concerns me is the kind of issue of individual responsibility, how that gets tied up to a neoliberal ideology and to privatization, you know, disaster capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a difference between a kind of neoliberal individualist ideology and the kind of uh, mutual aid and a different kind of relationship to sovereignty that emerges in these moments. A lot of what we saw in Puerto Rico with the ousting of the government was made possible by government abandonment in some ways. You know, some of the people I interviewed, they said, well, you know, I want to get rid of Ricky. I, we don't need him. We don't need this governor. Where was he during the disaster? So even though we're letting the state off the hook as the state becomes irrelevant to our survival in these moments, I think that emboldens us to get rid of state institutions. And so I don't think it's in any way a coincidence. And in the middle of this botched pandemic, the movement to abolish the police, to defund the government institutions that don't serve us has gained so much momentum because I think people have been exposed directly to state irresponsibility and state abandonment. And that has emboldened them because I always try to be an optimist and this is such a complicated (laughs) time, but, you know, I insist on some kind of analytical optimism. And I do think that we can see something to be optimistic about in terms of how people have responded to state abandonment because they've responded to it by organizing collectively and by making new demands of the state. Um, A lot of people were disappointed after the summer protest because Anytime you have that, this kind of revolutionary seeming politics, you're going to be disappointed when the whole world doesn't change, you know, the next day. It's like, wait, but suddenly everything seems possible. Um, so obviously there's been a lot of disappointment. And the first year anniversary of the Ricky Renuncia movement, it was very ambivalent here. And it was interesting to compare it to the anniversary, the first year anniversary of Maria, which is when we started putting together the Aftershock book. At that point, it was impossible to talk about Maria as history because we felt like we were still in it. And then the Ricky Renuncia anniversary felt different because it felt like unfinished. Our colleague, Rocio Zambrana, she's been writing about checklists with the Ricky Renuncia movement, how among the protesters, a lot of people were holding up lists of everyone they wanted to get rid of and everything they wanted to get rid of. So the governor, the fiscal board, the debt, I think just having that list of things to do, things that we have pending, these pending tasks, you know, that's something that we were missing in Puerto Rico for a long time because there's a sense of impasse and of, okay, we're unhappy 
with the current relationship to the United States, but we're not sure where to go from here. So, I mean, the kind of purpose that a checklist provides is, I think, really useful. And so I think that there is a sense of something brewing. I mean, obviously, the pandemic, it's not a metaphor. It's like a real condition where people are really waiting to feel safe, you know, protesting in the way that they have in the past. But even with that, people have done protests in their cars. And just this week, people were arrested in the Department of Labor for protesting the government mishandling of unemployment rights that have been withheld from them. You were just listening to a Haymarket Books talk called Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm. Thank you to Haymarket Books for sharing the talk with us. And you're listening to Making Contact. That does it for today's show. You can find more information on our site at radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes Sonia Green, Lisa Rudman, Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.